This is Jacobin Radio. I'm Susie Wiseman. We begin today with the massive protest movement in Belarus that has gone on since August 9th when the blatantly fraudulent election results were announced, spurring unprecedented protests that continue to this day, despite a brutal response from the security forces. President Lukashenko claimed he won 80% of the votes in a deteriorating economic situation, an escalating pandemic, which the government ignored while spending lavishly on World War II parades. Hundreds of thousands have taken to the streets. Workers have downed their tools to go on strike and join the protest movement, while President Lukashenko has dug in, doubling down on repression and shocking the world with the regime's brutality. We'll talk to Lizaveta Merliak, International Secretary of the Belarusian Independent Trade Union, BNP, in Grodno, Belarus. We then turn to California, where the courts and the legislature have determined that Uber, Lyft, Instacart, DoorDash, and Postmates are not tech apps, but driving companies, and their workers are employees, not independent contractors. The court has issued an injunction against the companies, and they, in turn, have threatened to halt services in California until November, when voters will vote on their sponsored Prop 22, which would give them a carve-out or exemption to the law to deny their drivers rights and protections like minimum wage, sick leave, and safety protections. Sarah Mason, a former Lyft driver and DoorDasher who's now a grad student studying platform-mediated labor, joins us to explain. All this when our program returns in just a moment. This is Jacobin Radio. I'm Susie Wiseman. We're going to begin today's program on the situation in Belarus. Now, I recognize that many listeners know very little about this beyond what is in the headlines, but that's our purpose today, to go beneath the surface. And it's been two weeks since the August 9th election that has been called blatantly fraudulent. The announcement that Lukashenko is, who has been in power for 26 years, will have another term, has spurred unprecedented protests across the country that are still continuing, despite a very brutal response from the security forces. Hundreds of thousands have been in the streets. Workers have gone on strike around the country. And Lukashenko has dug in, doubling down on repression. So we're very fortunate to be able to talk to Lizaveta Meliak in Belarus today. She's in Grodno. She is the International Secretary of the Belarusian Independent Trade Union, or BNP, and she's written an article on the situation in Belarus today with Kirill Buketov, who's appeared before on this show, and that is in Global Labor Column and was reprinted in Portside on the 17th of August, and it's called Belarus, a new country on the map of Europe. So we're going to get Lizaveta's take on this protest movement, the stakes involved, whether Lukashenko will willingly resign and what this means for Belarus and its future development. So with all of that, Lizaveta Merliak, welcome to Jacobin Radio. Thank you, Susie. I'm very pleased to have you. And I just want to say, you know, that what we should probably begin with is just the overall situation since the presidential elections. And I know that you are also circulating a statement now around Facebook and elsewhere that's 
a kind of appeal for international solidarity. So let's just begin with where we are and what has happened. Okay. So it's about two weeks since the elections, and it looks like uh, the country changed really much, and there is no possibility to come back for the whole society. Uh, after 9th of August, um, when we faced this violence, uh, detention of over 7,000 people who were protesting peacefully in the street, just trying to protect their vote, elections were neither fair, I can say, and nor transparent. Actually, since 26 years, we haven't had a transparent or fair election. All the elections were fraud, which can be, which was witnessed by many observers, international observers and uh, local observers. This year, in 2020, uh, due to COVID-19, the elections were not observed by any international organization. And uh, independent observers from the Belarusian society were not allowed to be present as as well. So people who voted against Lukashenko, they were supposed to observe the elections from uh, from the street, kind of. They couldn't get in, they couldn't count uh, the bulletins, they couldn't see the final results. So on the 9th of August, many Belarusians went out in the streets just to understand what is going on and what are the numbers. And when the pre-election results were announced by the Central Election Committee, it looked like over 80% of the population voted for the acting president. However, uh, it looked like people didn't know anyone uh, from their neighborhood or anyone from their working place who voted for him. So it looks like um, we are fooled around. This was one of the things I read, I think, in in your article, but also elsewhere, that after the election results came out that, you know, Lukashenko won, that people asked everyone they knew, and it turned out no one voted for him. So go ahead. Yeah. So as I said, the unprecedented violence uh, against uh, peaceful protesters was the reply to people in the street. About 7,000 citizens were arrested. uh, And I should also add that the internet connection in the whole country was uh, blocked. So we couldn't get any results or any commands from no one. So we had to go to the street to to see other people and to ask. Well, as I have a little boy, three years old, he, he's watching cartoons all the time and we don't have those cartoons taped or whatever. We have them in the internet. So he spent three days watching one and the same cartoon that we still had on computer. And it was a Japanese cartoon from the 80s called My Neighbor Totoro. So uh, <laughs> it was like three days at a row. He was watching one and the same cartoon. Like it stopped and then started again and again. And it reminded me of my childhood when uh, the Soviet Union was collapsing. And the TV show was just the ballet by Tchaikovsky, I think, uh, The Swan Lake. They only showed this ballet the whole day. And <laughs> and my boy was watching this My Neighbor Totoro for the whole day, uh, three days at a row, because no internet was possibly on, on his computer. And it's really interesting that you say that because I'm sure you know every move of that ballet, every dance step by now, just like your your child knows every bit of dialogue in this cartoon. Yeah. 
Luckily, he's only three. So perhaps, you know, this is just like a lesson in memorization. But of course, the situation that you're talking about is is very different. And people here in the West now have been seeing, especially since 2019, gigantic protests movements all across the globe against the ravages of neoliberalism and austerity. And in Belarus, we have a different situation. It seems like it's the last holdout of the Soviet-style authoritarian bureaucratic command society, but with the market as well. So Lukashenko, like Putin, but different. And maybe you could just sort of, for our listeners, talk a little bit about where Belarus has been since 1992 when it became an independent country. And I should just say to the listeners that you know, Belarus was Belarusia and it was, you know, met white Russia and a lot of people around the world still call it that. They're stuck in the Soviet era in terms of thinking of republics that have gone independent. Others have compared this to the Maidan in Ukraine. I'm throwing in a lot of extras there, but Lizaveta Merliark, I'd love it if you could just sort of do a very quick uh, sort of overview of what's happened in these years and how Lukashenko has held on, and then we can move to the protest movement and the demands and the grievances. In the end of 80s and beginning of 90s, I will talk about the situation from the perspective of trade unionists, okay? Yes. A huge, massive uh, strike movement broke out uh, in Belarus, Ukraine, and Russia, and it started with the miners. At that time, we were so poor and the conditions of workers were really, really poor in mines that the average, um, the age that you are expected to reach when you are about to die. So life expectancy. Yeah. Yeah. Life expectancy was in the mining region was for men 49 years old. Mm. So you can see the conditions were very poor. So the miners started all those protest movements, which actually helped to to end up with the Soviet Union, actually. It, it, it led to the breakup of the Soviet Union, finally, or to the end of the disintegration. It helped a lot, yeah. helped a lot actually. Yeah. So just imagine that in 1992, we gained uh, independence, and uh, the whole economy, the economic connections between uh, huge enterprises was broken. And uh, when Lukashenko came to power in 1994, he kind of promised the workers that the connections will be renewed again and that we will start living living a normal life, kind of, the one that, that they still remembered and many of them were nostalgic for. And many people voted for him, actually, for the first time in 1994. And since then, he started to make, actually, connections to Russia. They had many agreements, they had many artificial organizations kind of between Russia and Belarus. It was like a union. He promised that he would he would have a union with Russia. So we were kind of losing our independence every year with each agreement he would uh, sign with Yeltsin first and then uh, Putin. We are in such a position that we don't have our own uh, energy resources. Like, we don't have oil, we don't have gas, and Russia has it. So all those agreements were connected to to the power resources, energy resources. We got those resources nearly for free or for a price close to nothing. And our huge oil refineries could work 
using this cheaper oil, cheaper gas from Russia. With this cheaper gas and cheaper oil, we were losing and losing our independence. We were losing what we were fighting for, actually, for many years. So with each year he was in power, he got rid of all the opponents. Like first, many political uh, leaders and famous politicians and parliament members disappeared. And uh, recently we got to know that they were murdered, actually. So the parliament, which had uh, a party system, like many parties were represented there, from the left to right spectrum. I mean, we had socialists, social democrats, we had liberals, we had uh, nationalists and different kind of parties were represented in parliament. But now, not a single one is represented. I mean, there is one Stalinist Communist Party members, like two members of parliament or something, some kind of liberal party, but uh, they're not a real party. Also, they're in parliament. And the rest of parliament is represented by those uh, who have a position in this bureaucratic vertical that uh, Lukashenko created. They're directors, or not directors, but... um, top managers of state-owned enterprises, for example, and so on. You know, those people uh, (laughs) who don't represent anyone, but they are kind of pro-Lukashenko bureaucrats, and they are in parliament. So he destroyed this political system in parliament, and uh, the opposition parties, they were losing members because it was very dangerous to be an opposition party member. So they were all in exile. The independent trade union movement was also under attack. First of all, what he did in 2002, I mean, Lukashenko, he did, he named the chairperson of the Federation of Trade Unions of Belarus. I mean, this person was not elected. He was put to this position by the president of the country. And since then, we really started to face uh, terrible problems uh, with labor legislation. Lukashenko, with help of those state unions, started to to bring up those neoliberal ideas under under the flag of socialism or something. So what we call this regime, politically it is called uh, state capitalism or something, and the state is a dictatorship. So this capitalism under dictatorship of a state, something <laughs> something really, really strange. But is it like the old, because I just want to ask this question, Elizabeth and Merliak, that about the trade unions, because in the old Soviet Union, there were the official trade union movement that represented all the workers and never once, not even once in the entire period of the Soviet Union, argued or fought for workers' rights. They just sided with the state. Uh, But all along, there were always attempts at independent trade unions. And you are the president of an independent trade union. I'm sorry, of the your international secretary of Mm. the independent trade union. And so are those official unions still there? And are there, you know, is that a base of support for Lukashenko? Yes, you're right. We have two union federations in the country. One is the Federation of Trade Unions of Belarus, which is pro-Lukashenko and which is which has all the workforce in the country covered by membership of this union. And we have the Belarusian Congress of Democratic Trade Unions, which is an independent trade union center. And my union, Belarusian Independent Trade Union of Miners and Chemical Workers, is part of this congress. Can I ask one more question just now about 
in terms of the support for Lukashenko, which comes from this official movement, you have described an economic situation that has moved more and more in a neoliberal uh, direction with the sort of bureaucratic state apparatus mouthing the words of more, you know, of a more equal sort of society than actually exists. But was there that sort of implicit social contract that even though there would be no political rights or political parties that would openly be able to organize, that at least there was a guaranteed welfare state and and protections? Did that buy support for Lukashenko in these last 26 years or, or not? Well, I can't say that workers uh, have have any rights under this regime. I mean, they are in the unions, but those unions are used as a special mechanism to silence them. It's mm-hmm. kind of, if an enterprise has a union, uh, which is state union, then they would have a collective agreement in which they would get just the minimum, for example, But in addition to their salary, they would get some tickets to go to the theater, some uh, tickets to go to sports events, or I don't know, they will have a children's summer camp paid half by the employer or something. So instead of uh, providing them really good salary, decent job and decent salary, so that the workers could spend this money on anything they want, they are providing some stupid things that can be exchanged for freedom or something. Like for nearly 20 years, there was not a single strike in the country, not even an economic strike, a strike to improve conditions at work. Workers are silenced, especially by the, the short-term contract system, which was implemented many years ago. This system of short-term contracts gave the employers and the state the power to get rid of any worker who was not needed. I mean, a worker who might have a different political position, for example, if a contract is for one year, then to continue the contract with this worker, the employer might say that first you need to leave an independent union and join the state union, for example. And this short contract system made our ranks, the ranks of the independent trade union movement, very weak. Because many people chose uh, the side of salary or some additional payments instead of freedom and possibility to bargain collectively with the employer using more militant practices. Kind of. So you mentioned that in all those years there was never a strike, even an economic strike. And maybe we should move now to what's going on right now, because there is this unprecedented mass movement in the streets. And as I mentioned at the outset, there's also a strike wave that, you know, many workers are spontaneously going on strike throughout the country. And I want to get from you what they're planning next, but no one expected this, it seems. It looks like it, at least from outside, but it also looks like the authorities in Belarus did not expect this kind of a protest movement. Can you talk a little bit about that and who is protesting? What is the social composition of the people in the streets? And especially given that we're also in the middle of a pandemic and you have to socially distance, how how difficult this is. Actually, we, the unions, also didn't expect that so many workers would join a protest movement. 
But it looked like Koshenko this time, he angered really many people, especially with his attitude to COVID-19. Like in the beginning of March, when the pandemic started to uh, increase in, in Belarus, Lukashenko said that he can't see any virus. I mean, do you see the virus? No, you can't see it, then it doesn't exist. And if you feel sick, go to a sauna and then take a couple of shots of vodka and you will be okay. That was the attitude. And then when really people started to die, he was commenting their deaths, saying that it was their own fault, that they were in the streets. The example, the first example was really tragic. It was an old old person who served as an actor in Vitebsk theater. He died of uh, COVID-19. And the comments from from the president of the country was that it was his own fault that this old guy was on stage and was seeing many people, and that is why he died, kind of. And mm. people in Belarus started to think that it was not fair to talk about the, his citizens this way. It looked like uh, the whole world was doing one thing and Belarus was doing another Belarus and Brazil, you know, uh, another United States, uh, United States, yeah, <laughs> in, some, in some way. But we are not isolated. We are not on a different planet. And there is internet, and there are connections between people. And many Belarusians live abroad, and they communicate to their families using internet, using this Zoom and other applications to have communication. And everyone was contacting relatives, friends anyone in immigration and getting information that people are isolating themselves, that governments are paying some money if, if you have to stay at home for self-isolation. Like I have relatives in France and they were, they were really scared that we are exposed to, to this danger. And in the beginning, this danger was really <laughs> I don't know, horrifying me, a mother of a three-year-old boy. I took him from the kindergarten and we stayed at home for several weeks having something, some cough, some temperature that couldn't get down. Like um, maybe I already had this COVID-19, I'm not sure. And those tests were not available. It was terrible. Like people were left alone to fight with this, with something we can see, actually. And our president didn't see, actually, and so that added to the fury this of the protest. Added, yeah, of course, of course. And one more thing added to the massiveness of this protest. Many Belarusians joined voluntary groups of people who were helping medical workers. Those who made the protection screens, for example, who sued special outfits for doctors and for, for medical workers. We were sewing masks and making glasses and everything ourselves with our hands. And not me, I was paying some money, <laughs> donating. I can't sue. So this movement was very, very massive, I should say. And I think it mobilized us a lot. Yeah. And, and those so connections are still, we still have those connections with those who are volunteering. And the cafeterias were providing food for those who sue for the doctors. And for the doctors, they brought food from restaurants, pizzas and hot meals, you know. It was like a, a big movement. 
This is the upside of the of the pandemic that the solidarity yeah. networks because the yeah. government is doing nothing. Yeah. Maybe we should because we don't have forever. But can we move yeah. into then from well, there? The, well, the strikes. The, okay. What, what are the, the what are they hoping for, etc. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So uh, in the beginning, I said that we faced violence from the state uh, and we had no internet and many people disappeared and relatives didn't know where they are. And that made many workers think that if they work for a state-owned enterprise, then they should address an employer, their employer, the representative of administration, asking the employer to stop the violence of the state. And they did. Like in Grodno, where I work, at Grodno Azot, it's a joint stock company, state-owned enterprise, producing ammonia, uh, nitrogen, uh, uh, fertilizers, everything, explosives. Wow. <laughs> Huge one. Yeah. The workers went to the, to the management and demanded that the violence stop. Then during these meetings, with, um, which were spontaneous and which were in the street, not at the enterprise, but in the street, somebody once... Uh, asked uh, who voted for Lukashenko could you raise your hands and just two people rose their hands and both were from administration and when he asked those who voted for Svetlana Tikhanovska can you show your hands and everyone was like showing their hands and shouting yes and finally we saw that many many of us have power many of us should protect their voice uh, should protect their vote actually and from that moment workers started to put forward political demands. The first demand was to get rid of Lukashenko, that he's not legitimate, that he has fooled us around and uh, he's using our money, our taxes for paying the special police forces who beat us and put us to prisons. And that made the protest roll further. And it was the first days after the elections. It emerged into strikes, strikes with political demands. The workers wanted to be organized, and they created strike committees at several huge enterprises, those enterprises which bring money to the state, actually. One of those is Grodna Azot, where I work. Another one is a joint stock company, Belarus Kali, which is the fourth biggest supplier of potash fertilizers in the world, uh, which is 100% owned by the state. Also in Minsk, There were strikes at metal industry enterprises, machinery and tractor producing companies. I can say that the strikes that we have, they look more like political protests. So it's hard to stop the enterprises. And actually, when we say strike, we see workers who don't work, right? I'm on strike, I don't work. But in uh, those huge chemical enterprises, you can't just walk out and leave your job. Because all those machines, all this equipment should work constantly because the chemical reaction is going on, kind of, and it is explosive, and you can't leave your job because your family is in the city. And if this plant collapses, then in the radius of, I don't know, 30 kilometers, nobody will survive. So we have to think of cleverer kinds of strikes. And we think that in some way, even doing some protest at this chemical plant. We already reached uh, some some goals. As you you have to know that in Beirut, there was this explosion of this ship with ammonia 
inside the huge fire. You know about that, right? Yes. So after this, the market, the global market of ammonia was shaken. And now there's something with prices on this chemical. And our plant is producing it. And wow. the, the management of the company said that now it's time. Now you want, when you want to strike, now it's time to produce more and more because there's a demand for that and we will get money for that. So <laughs> actually, what we got to know, some sanctions are prepared, targeted sanctions against state-owned enterprises in Belarus is prepared by the European Union. And uh, the plan of our plant management might be ruined because this ammonia from Belarus will have no way to go to the to the market. Of course it is it is not good for the workers, but we have this goal to stop financing the dictatorship. Hmm. I had two questions that I wanted to get your response to. And one was it in the article that you wrote that was reprinted on Portside from the Global Labor column, you said that Lukashenko was particularly incensed that his opponent was a woman and that there were women opposing to him. And, and so that, of course, begs the question of what is the situation, special situation of women in Belarus and why is it that this made him even you know, more angry that, that his opponent was a woman. And then perhaps you could say, because it's Tikhonovskaya, what does she represent? Does she stand with the workers, for example, and workers' committees and this sort of organization that you've been uh, talking about? Well, at the moment, Svetlana Tikhonovskaya is in exile in uh, Lithuania uh, with her children, and her husband is in prison. She never mm. said that she was politically engaged or active, and from time to time, uh, she's sending messages, video messages from abroad saying that she's with us, that we have to act and that we have to go on, we, we, we shouldn't stop. And by the way, she speaks English and you can see her interviews or uh, her messages in English. She's nice, mm -hmm. she's good, but we don't, she, she's not in the country, she's not the leader of the movement. Mm. Uh, we don't have a leader, actually. It's about women. It's for women in Belarus. Women in Belarus are more educated than men. And we are more in number than men, actually. And yeah, we are represented in parliament. So, but however, the composition of parliament is those bureaucrats from the vertical. This, so it doesn't matter if they are women or men. They are kind of on the evil side. <laughs> so, Got it. Um, but, yeah, but so, we have we have women's movements, we have feminist movements, we have women represented in parties, we have party leaders who are women. I mean, we have women everywhere, but the recent speeches of president when he said that the constitution of Belarus is not done for women, that not a single woman is able to uh, run the country, or he also said that how can a woman be a president? As in President Palace, there's no toilet for women. I mean, so stupid, disgusting things, humiliating women as, as a class. <laughs> but this year, seeing those three brave women on stage in each city and village, I mean, Tikhonovska, Veronika Tsipkala, and Maria Kolesnikova, those three, this trio, which was always in the streets and collecting masses in support of their meetings. Yeah, Lukashenko was envious, uh, jealous. He was he was he was called Batka, which means father, father of the nation kind of. 
And here we see a woman, a woman who talks to us in a kind way, who loves us, who doesn't want to punish us. And it, it brought a lot of attention from everyone. I mean, youth, workers, all the population. I mean, everyone was following her. She's the leader now, I mean, but in exile, and we hope she will be fine. Uh, but if she comes back, I'm sure she is a legitimately elected president. I want to have a president, a woman president, an educated person who speaks many languages, who understands Belarusians, who is kind, who wants to have better future for everyone. So let's go then finally, Elizaveta, to the situation on the ground. So it's two weeks of protests and incredible brutality, torture, people arrested. So Lukashenko is not going easily. But on the other hand, as you say, he has no real legitimacy after this blatantly fraudulent election. So it seems like a stalemate. And I see that many of the workers' organizations are now issuing international appeals for solidarity. So maybe we could just end by asking you where you see the situation going from here and what you hope to see out of this. I really hoped that we could start a national strike, a general strike, and stop production some week ago, a week ago when the mass movements in the streets were joining uh, the workers and when we had some kind of democracy and freedom back. It was a week ago. And now we see a slide back. I mean, what we reached is taken away from us and the, the strike movement is also under threat. I think that if we don't get this national strike committee altogether the strike might be stopped by the military and police forces. However, I think that we might come to a long-term protest, go-slow movement or whatever, and finally maybe we will find uh, some kind of solution when we are all together. It looks like the secret services and all those uh, military services, they want to distract us from joining a bigger movement. All the strike committees fight on their local level. And we don't have this bigger coordination. We are always busy with our own things on the shop floor level, kind of. We are pre prevented from forming a national strike committee. As soon as we form it, we will become a legitimate power to be a leverage to this regime. I don't know. Well, I hope that... After this weekend, uh, let's say on Monday, we will send our representative to this National Coordination uh, Strike Committee and it will help us to have a bigger leverage on regime when we are all together. Thank you. I, I have, I guess, just one added question is, what do you expect from Putin in Russia? Hands off or some sort of quieter intervention? Well, one thing about Russia... <laughs> Our national television journalists and technical personnel refused to work for national channels and announced a strike. And what Lukashenko did, he asked Russian journalists to come to become scabs, actually. So, so now we have Belarusian channels with Russian journalists who are broadcasting the same that they did uh, when Ukrainian conflict was 
in the Maidan, yes. Developing, yes. Yeah. All this thing about fascist and the street and this white, red, white flag, this national symbol of Belarus as a fascist flag, the flag used in the Second World War by betrayers, and you know, all this thing comes from, from the TV screen now, thanks to Russian journalists. Well, I hope that Putin has enough problems of his own and he doesn't need another problem on the West. Well, we're going to have to end it there. But as you also said, you're connected. There's an Internet. So even if there's the journalists from Russia, people have access to other means of information. Sure. So I want to thank you so much for taking the time tonight and staying up late to talk to us here from Belarus. Lizaveta Meliak is the International Secretary of the Belarusian Independent Trade Union, BNP. And she has written an article with Kirill Buketov, and you can see it at the Global Labor Politics magazine, and it's been reprinted on Portside. If you need a link, I'll post it on the Facebook page. Uh, and I want to just thank you so much for joining us today, uh, Lizaveta, and wish you the best of luck. Yeah, thank you. This is Jacobin Radio. I'm Susie Weisman, and Super pleased to have Sarah Mason back with us. We're turning to California. We've just finished talking about the spectacular protest movement in Belarus, including widespread worker strikes. And of course, the U.S. is no longer an outlier when it comes to protest movements. And what we're seeing now in California is something quite different because the California Supreme Court a couple of years ago, in a decision, determined that drivers for app companies such as Uber, Lyft, Postmates, DoorDash, and Instacart are in fact employees, something we all kind of figured, and not independent contractors as the app owners contend. And the court provided a test, and they called it the ABC test. And that was to determine if workers were contractors or employees. Of course, the employers challenged this. Their whole business model is to make their drivers independent contractors, and they therefore are able to avoid paying them things like the minimum wage and benefits and sick leave and all kinds of other protections. The court provided a further test called the ABC test, which was a test to determine whether or not a worker is a contractor or an employee. And of course, the employers challenged that and so then the legislature got into the game, taking the court decision and passing AB5, which essentially turned the court decision into law. And in so doing, the California legislature denied Uber and the rest of these app companies contention that they are tech companies and not drivers companies. They said the drivers are not like plumbers working for themselves and setting up their own compensation and so forth, but that these drivers are employees and need state protection. And that went into effect in January of 2020, before we knew about COVID. And then in April 2020, Attorney General Javier Becerra sued Uber and Lyft for misclassification under California employment law and asked the court for a preliminary injunction forcing the companies to comply with the law and highlighting the need for basic worker protections during the global pandemic because these drivers have been not so much active in terms of taking people places during the lockdown, but certainly in delivering food. 
and groceries and other sorts of things. And so the other thing about that is that uh, the app companies have had since January, uh, when the law went into effect, to try to change their business model. And of course, they didn't. And in response, a California judge, Ethan Schulman, issued a pretty stunning decision on August 10th, 2020, granting the injunction a pending appeal. And upon receiving that, the companies threatened to halt services in California until November when California voters will vote on Prop 22 sponsored by these companies, which would in in effect create a sort of carve out for the companies. And it will also create a substandard tier of workers in California, essentially underpaid and, of course, immigrant and, and people of color, as we know. The proposition does not include a time based wage floor unemployment insurance or any of the other things. So on the 20th of August, and that's just this week, the appeals court ruled in support of the law and the attorney general. And essentially, the companies have very little case and are likely to lose. They've had another stay. We don't know how long it's going to be, but essentially it looks like those companies are trying to hold out until the election, hoping that their proposition passes and they don't have to to change their business model. Well, this is a lot of information to give in a very short introduction, but I've invited Sarah Mason to join us and to help sort of explain it all. Sarah's been on this show before when she described her own experiences as a Lyft driver. She's also been a door dasher and she's currently a grad student at UC Santa Cruz. We also had her talking about the strike, the Wildcats strike that occupied all of last year for Sarah, literally until uh, the pandemic forced them inside. But Sarah is studying platform mediated labor at UC Santa Cruz and her article, High Score, Low Pay, Why the Gig Economy Loves Gamification, uh, appeared in The Guardian uh, November 2018 and was their chosen long read for that month. So with all of that, Sarah Mason, welcome back. Thank you so much for having me. I'm always glad to have you. So I think maybe we could just begin by going over one more time Uh, What the court and the legislature have done in trying to force Uber and Lyft, DoorDash and Postmates and Instacart to call their workers, their drivers, employees and not independent contractors. Can you maybe say in your own experience and what you understand the distinction between them is? Sure. So I think the meaning of this distinction is critical because as you said, it it determines what kinds of protections and benefits the workers who perform this labor are entitled to under the law. Um, So this includes things like wage and hour laws, overtime pay, protection from discrimination and minimum wage. Employees are legally entitled to earn a minimum wage. And we know that most drivers earn between $9 and $10 an hour, um, which in California is far below the minimum wage. Um, Employees are entitled to these protections. Outside contractors are not. This distinction also dictates whether or not these workers can receive things like unemployment benefits and workers' compensation if they're injured on the job. Um, And so when ride-hill drivers are classified as outside contractors, they aren't entitled to any of these things. Um, Absolutely none of it. 
And so for many drivers, especially those whose primary source of income comes from driving, and study after study now is starting to confirm uh, that the majority of drivers are not driving as a side hustle. In fact, they do this full-time. This distinction between outside contractor and employee is extremely consequential. Um, And of course, it's consequential for Lyft and Uber too, as you said, because their entire business model is really predicated on their ability to transfer a tremendous amount of cost and liability onto drivers for whom they bear very little responsibility. Um, Drivers are responsible for assuming almost all of the risk that's involved in this venture. They purchase everything from the car that they drive to the gas. The insurance um, as well the insurance, regular car maintenance. And so, as you said, there's been this battle in California over whether or not drivers were being misclassified. And so in 2018, like you said, the the California Supreme Court came up with this test, the ABC test, which was later codified by the legislature in, in AB5, where it said that a worker must be considered an employee unless all three of the following conditions are met. I can just go over those three and explain some of the problems that Lyft and Uber run into when trying to meet these conditions. The first condition is that the worker must be free from the control and direction of the, quote, hiring entity, which is the employer. And this is a hard one for Uber and Lyft to meet because we know that both Lyft and Uber algorithmically manage their drivers which means that they rely on technological tools to surveil their workforce. They amass large amounts of data on that workforce. And then they use that data. The algorithm uses that data to allocate rides, to determine routes, to determine pay, to make all kinds of decisions that we would think of as managerial, to to make managerial decisions. Um, We also know that drivers report feeling pressured to accept rides that are not necessarily financially advantageous. We know that drivers report being penalized for rejecting rides and that they're disincentivized from working in certain areas, that they're denied access to information that would help them better assess whether or not they would like to accept certain rides. Um, And so this question of control, you know, how much control these drivers actually have over their work is much more complex than these companies would have you believe. And in fact, it's quite a hard sell to say that these workers are free from the control of their, quote, hiring entity. And so already, in terms of the ABC test, Lyft and Uber are running into quite a bit of trouble. The second condition that these companies must meet is that the worker must perform work that is outside of the usual course of the hiring entity's business. But this is also difficult for Uber and Lyft. Uh, since drivers are central to their business. I mean, these businesses could not exist without them. Um, And then lastly, the final condition is that the worker is customarily engaged in an independently established trade, occupation, or business of the same nature. And so that just sort of gives you an idea. If the worker does not meet all three of the conditions, then they must be classified as an employee. Now, since this has all gone down, and as we know, there's been a huge fight back, and they said they're not driver companies, they're tech companies, and as you say, they can't fit past the ABC test for their workers, and they have refused to change their business model because that changes everything. So essentially, though, if you look at this situation, the companies have basically said if Judge Shulman's decision upholding the law stands, 
we're going to halt services until after the November election. And so what do you think, Sarah Mason, doesn't this sound like a capital strike versus a labor strike, the one that you've been involved in, let's say, for the last nine months or so? (laughs) Yes, it's absolutely a capital strike. I think that's absolutely what, what we're looking at. And so to this question of can they get away with it, I don't know. I think in some ways you see that there's already been a sort of victory in the California appeals court granting these companies a temporary reprieve, um, which means that now they have until October 13th before oral arguments will begin. And and this is less than a month before Prop 22 will be put to the voters. Uh, And so stalling until November really seems to be their plan at this point. It looked like they were absolutely gearing up to suspend their operations. And, you know, drivers were undoubtedly nervous about this. Um, And this is understandable, I think, just given the economic situation that that workers are faced with right now. You know, there are no jobs. The social safety net is non-existent. Um, It's a really scary time to be out of work. I think at the same time, it would have been a risky move for these companies as well. I, I think they would have taken a financial hit. But of course, their calculation seems to be that they would have taken a bigger hit if they had submitted to the regulation. Uh, And so they seem to be betting that they can win this carve out, that they can win this exemption in November. And I want to come back to that in a moment about just what that is, uh, Sarah Mason. But I think we should just dwell for a second on what the response of these companies have been, and you are so right to say this happens in the midst of a pandemic and at the same time that Congress has allowed the benefit package to expire. And even though we have a temporary so-called moratorium on evictions, evictions are going forward, people have are not able to go to work. And so it's an absolutely catastrophic situation in the making. It's already catastrophic. It's going to get much more so. So, but the Uber Lyft response seems to be that whatever the courts or the legislature want to impose on them, they're just not going to do it. And they say they can't do it because it's not compatible with their business model. And so they are essentially saying we can't do business if we have to treat our workers like workers because, you know, we can't afford to pay all of these protections. And so it kind of looks like to the outsider that Uber, Lyft, DoorDash, Postmates, Instacart are basically saying, we demand the right to super exploit this workforce and to make super profits by not providing basic rights and protections. But on the other hand, and I hope maybe you can address that, it looks like they are not making actually super profits. Uber had this humongous $5 billion loss in the second quarter of 2020. Lyft's loss apparently was only $644 million. I don't know how to explain that discrepancy, and I don't know what it really means. But maybe you can just comment on all of this, what they're saying essentially, and you know what it means for them. Yeah, I mean, so in terms of, you know, what these companies are are saying about their business model and, and the fact that they can't survive if they're forced to change their business model, I think it's really simple. I mean, what these companies are saying is that they don't want to spend any additional money on unemployment insurance, healthcare benefits, overtime, minimum wage, you know, anything that would cut into their earnings. And the truth is, 
as you said, you know, these companies are already struggling to turn a profit. Both Uber and Lyft are reporting hundreds of millions of dollars in losses. I think for Uber, it's billions of dollars. And so for them, the idea that any additional money would go towards paying drivers, absolutely not. You know, this can't happen. It seems to me that these companies are banking on self-driving vehicles to ultimately resolve the profitability issue, uh, but also the classification issue as well. There isn't a classification issue if there are no drivers operating the vehicles, but this is years away. Right. Um, and it's sort of like, okay, well, in the future, we're not going to have any worker problem because we won't have any workers. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> um, but that isn't something that we can expect to see for years. Right. And so how this classification battle ultimately ends up looking like for these, these companies, I think remains to be seen and will be really interesting. Well, just, you know, and I know that there's also other arguments that they're putting out or other models that they may adopt that will lead to perhaps dubious benefits for workers like franchise operations. I don't want to go there right now, but what I do want to ask you, because you've had experience as a Lyft driver and a DoorDasher, and you've already just described recent studies that show who these drivers are. And there's a big report that just came out from UCLA, and I urge the listeners to go look at it. It's called Rigging the Gig. And it says that counter to what people think, two-thirds of the driving is done by people who drive full-time, who depend on this job for their livelihood. And one gets the idea that actually, given the terrible employment situation out there, people are having to hold two or three jobs to survive up until the pandemic and maybe even now still trying to uh, string them together. These jobs are all insecure. And so maybe for them, Uber and Lyft doesn't look so bad. And so that's kind of driving a wedge. And I just have to say, when you were describing this before, Sarah, saying that, you know, like the notion is that they're just doing women workers before too mm-hmm. in not paying them enough. So we've heard this argument before, but maybe you can bring it up to 2020. Yeah. It's just supplemental income, right? <laughs> what is it called? Purse money? <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> yeah. So this, this study at UCLA, I think really great findings there. I actually worked on a study for the city of San Francisco in the spring, and we had really similar findings in terms of discovering that the majority of people who are are doing this work in the city of San Francisco say that this is their primary source of income. This is not supplemental income. This is what they're spending 40, 50, 60 hours a week doing. And this is, you know, the core population of drivers. Okay. I want to say one, one more thing actually about, about this research, because I think in many ways, COVID-19 has, has had a big impact on how drivers are understanding the classification issue. And, you know, as I was conducting interviews with drivers at the beginning of the statewide shelter in place order, I was having some really interesting conversations. I mean, when that happened, Lyft and Uber drivers were deemed essential workers. And I spoke with a few drivers about their working conditions, and they were describing their frustration 
with the lack of guidelines that they were receiving about, you know, safety protocols, best practices, you know, how often should, should I be washing my car? Should I be driving with all of my windows rolled down for air circulation? How should I be uh, sanitizing door handles? Should I be doing that after every passenger, you know, things like that. And they were saying to me, these companies were not at all responsive. They issued nothing specific outside of CDC guidelines. But one of the conclusions that drivers seemed to be coming to as they were trying to understand, you know, why these companies would put their safety at risk in this way was that this was absolutely about classification. They understood that these companies uh, did not want to provide guidelines because if they did, they Mm. would be acting as employers. And so they didn't. Um, Unbelievable. We don't have a lot of time left, Sarah, but I wanted to ask you what you know about the politics of the companies and how are they banking on winning? How much are they spending? This is Prop 22 that will be on the ballot. It essentially will give a carve out in law and exemption for these driver apps and companies to deny their drivers rights and protections. So, Sarah, how do you think what's the campaign look like? I think. You know, one thing that we know is that these companies have a lot of money and that this right now, this is their strategy to avoid regulation and that they, you know, there is a lot of venture capital that is staking its claim on Lyft and Uber being hugely profitable in the future if they can just sort of get through this classification battle. I think the other thing we need to keep in mind is that these companies have a very large and growing user base. So not just Lyft and Uber about um, these delivery companies, which have really exploded in the wake of COVID-19 companies like DoorDash and Instacart. They have a huge and growing passenger base who are already being inundated with emails and alerts about threats to continued service. Um, And so because of this, they have direct access to a large number of potential voters, not to mention, I think, the massive ad campaign that we will, without a doubt, see ratcheting up in the coming months. You know, the other thing to keep in mind is is the the talking points that they're using around, you know, fears of job loss and the loss of essential delivery service. Given the sort of economic context that we're in, given the context of COVID-19, I think this is going to be really difficult terrain that we will be doing battle on. Um, Mm. And so it remains to be seen. Well, I want to thank you for that. We've run out of time, but literally just, I think one thing to remember is that Prop 22 is written by the companies, not by the workers. And that should give you a hint as to what they're trying to do and that we know they're spending more than a hundred million to get it passed. So watch for that coming in November and watch all of the intricacies between now and then. Sarah Mason, thank you so much for shedding light on these new developments with our new app companies that pretend not to be driver companies. Sarah's a Lyft driver and DoorDasher. She's actually now a grad student studying these platform mediated labor innovations at UC Santa Cruz, and she's waiting out the fire there as well. Thanks so much for joining us today, Sarah Mason. Thank you, Susie. Thanks for listening. I'm your host, Susie Wiseman. This is Jacobin Radio. Thanks to producer and director Alan Minsky and to Jacobin Radio's Micah Utrecht. Bhaskar Sunkara is the founder and editor of Jacobin Magazine. And special thanks to Robert Brenner. And thanks to you for listening. I'm Susie Wiseman.